Uh, if you're new here, or it's your first time, we're currently in a series in First Thessalonians. Um, we've titled the series, A Word of Encouragement. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to this young, small church to encourage them. And I believe that there's a word of encouragement for us, that we're able to look at these words, these, these words that are con- continually relevant for us today, and receive a word of encouragement. And so we're in part four of this series. Now, this morning, uh, Paul's going to transition us a little bit. He's going to turn the corner. He, he spent the, the first few uh, verses thanking the church in Thessalonica, just uh, incredibly encouraged by uh, their walk in Jesus, how they continue to trust in Jesus. But now he's about to turn the corner because uh, the, the rest of the series, he's going to be unpacking, well, then how are we to live with one another? What does holiness actually mean? He actually double-clicks on quite a few things. He talks about how do we have to understand sex? What does work mean? If you're a Christian, if you've crossed the line of faith, what does work mean for you? But before he does that, he finds it necessary to spend some time talking a little bit about faith. He, he wants to talk to us about faith. He finds it incredibly important to anchor us in faith. If we're to understand everything that he's going to talk about in the next few chapters, then we're to anchor ourselves in faith. That's the only way that we'll get through it. That's the only way that we'll understand God's beautiful design for sex, God's beautiful design for work. It's the only way we'll understand the, the return of Jesus. It's only if we anchor ourselves in faith. And so these seven verses that we're going to unpack, these six, six or seven verses, Paul's simply going to talk to us about faith. And so like we always do, I'm going to, I'm going to read the passage to us. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me and that we would ask God that he would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning. And so hear these words of our Father, First Thessalonians Chapter 3, from verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Now remember, uh, Paul had planted this church uh, with a few others and then uh, had to flee because of the persecution and, and, and the struggles that were, were coming up. And so he, he leaves this church. He now finds himself in Corinth, but he's thinking about this church. This young church. And so he's like, listen, uh, Timothy, I want you to go back and and make sure that that group of men and women are continuing to love Jesus. And so Timothy comes back with an encouraging report. He says, listen, God is at work. God is at work. And so that's why Paul writes this letter. He says, listen, I've heard the report from Timothy. It's incredibly encouraging. But let's keep reading, verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray more earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is rich. Thank you that it is active, that it is at work. Um, And so, Lord, I ask that your word would land on fertile soil, that our hearts would be open and receptive to you. Uh, We want to receive from you. I pray against any distractions here this morning, uh, that we would hear clearly from you. And so it's to that end that I ask that you would stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Uh, Father, you are our Redeemer. You are our King. Would you have your way this morning in and through us? It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So we're going to learn two things about faith. I mean, we could unpack this beautiful truth of faith, this reality of faith. We could unpack it for days. But, but here in these few verses, uh, Paul's going to show us two things about faith. We're going to see two important, critical things about faith. He's going to tell us the, the, the joy of faith. We're going to see the joy of faith, the joy that comes in anchoring ourselves in this faith. And then we're going to see the certainty of faith, the certainty of faith. But let's start with the first one, the joy of faith of faith. Read with me verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted by you through your faith. See, we as Christians, we're able to mutually encourage one another, regardless of background, culture, context. The fact that we're able to, to celebrate together with other Christians who are in a different country Because we anchor ourselves in the same faith. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, I know I'm not with you. I'm in Corinth. I'm not with you. But I'm able to to find joy, to be encouraged by your faith. That you are anchoring yourself in the very same faith that I'm anchoring myself in. And that there's joy to be experienced in that. That's why I love being part of a network like X29. When we gather together in an X29 conference, I get to hang out with other people from different cultures and different backgrounds, but we all have the same faith. I get to hear different stories, what God is doing in their spaces. That should bring joy to us. Paul says it does. It encourages him. It allows him to keep going on. Verse 8, he says, For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord... There's joy there. Paul is like, listen, I am incredibly excited that you guys are still anchored in the faith. He sends Timothy back because he's like, listen, I'm worried. I'm worried. We weren't there for a very long time. Then we had to flee. So I don't know. I don't know if they're still loving Jesus. But then upon hearing the report, he writes this. He says, for we now live if you are standing fast in the Lord. He says, I am joyful knowing that you are still in the Lord. What Paul is saying is that the sum total of our lives should be about knowing Jesus and making him known. That should be the sum total of our life. It's about knowing Jesus and then making him known. That's what we should live for. That's what we should live for. When we get to see other people cross the line of faith, when we get to see other people move from a, a place of darkness into a place of light, that should give us joy when they anchor themselves in faith. So he says, for now we live. For now we live knowing that you are still loving Jesus. For now we live. This is the same Paul who said, 
for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. That's what my life is all about. It's about knowing Jesus and then making him known. But the joy continues. Read with me in verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray more most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He's clear about it there. He says, listen, my joy is to see you grow in Jesus Christ. And to hear the report that you are growing in your faith brings me joy. It brings me joy, the joy of seeing others grow in Christ. I wonder if we experience that joy. I wonder if you experience that joy. Are you in spaces where you get to see other people grow in their relationship with Christ? You know, the, the best way to do that, the best way to experience that is through discipleship. It's one of the things that, that, that we are as a church plant. We're gospel-centered, we're transcultural, but we're also disciple-making. We believe in discipleship. And now here's the thing. A lot of people tend to think this is what discipleship is. It's grabbing a coffee with someone who's going through a rough time. Now, I'm not saying that that's not important. It's incredibly important. But I don't know if it's uh, discipleship as we see it in the Scriptures. You get to do that with someone maybe once every quarter. I don't know if that's discipleship. That's counseling, coaching, mentoring. But it's not discipleship. Discipleship is, is being in that person's space, pouring your life into theirs, knowing their narrative from start to end, watching them grow. Now, I'm not a farmer, by no means. But I can imagine it's like having a farm and then plowing. Is that the correct terminology? Plowing? Plowing and then putting in the seeds and then watering it. If you go back the next day, nothing's going to change. It'll be exactly the same. But it's only after a couple of months that you get to see something come out of the soil. You see growth. That's what discipleship is like. It takes time. But when you see it, when you see it, it should give you joy. It should give you this, this joy that's almost unexplainable. To watch someone move from a place of darkness to light and then to grow in their relationship with Jesus. To no longer find themselves shackled to their sins. Do you experience that? Are you walking in other people's lives where you get to see that? Where you get to see people grow in their relationship with Jesus? Because they are anchored in their faith. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, man, I have so much joy because the report that Timothy has brought is that you guys are growing in your faith. You are growing in your faith. That's why he's able to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? What is our hope? What is our, what is our joy? What do we boast in as we await the, the return of Jesus? What do we boast in? Where do we find our joy? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. 
for you are our glory and joy. I was Skyping with a very good friend of mine yesterday. Um, his name is Corey Thompson. If you've heard my story, you would have heard of him. Uh, he's the man that discipled uh, myself. He discipled Joey, who preached here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he discipled another good friend of mine, Sammy, and, and a few others. He's from America, but, but, but gave up a number of years to come and spend uh, here in South Africa with the purposes of, of knowing Jesus, but then also making him known. And then he discipled a few. And so I got to Skype with him, and I was just sharing about what God is doing here. What God is doing here. The church plant. How we get to see people move from darkness to light. From being enemies of God to being friends. How they are growing in their relationship with Jesus. And then he reads those words to me. Because he discipled me. He played an important and critical part in my growth. We are his crown. We are his joy. And so Paul says the same thing. He says, church in Thessalonica, you are our joy. Who is your joy? Who are you building into so that one day you will be able to look back Regardless of what's going on in your life, you'll be able to look back and go, you know what? We do not labor in vain. There is our joy. Couples who choose to stay married despite the realities that they're going through because they love Jesus. Families that are being raised in the gospel because they want to anchor themselves in their faith knowing that you, you were able to, to play a role in that, that should give you joy. As we look out to this broken city that we love so much, and knowing that many of you are in the corporate spaces and the government spaces, in your neighborhoods, you want people to know Jesus. You're wanting to disciple people. And then maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, things begin to change. You're able to look back and go, that is my crown. There's my joy. My joy is not found in my success or my material things. It's found in people knowing who Jesus is and then growing in him. As we await the return of our Lord and Savior. And so Paul wants us to know of this joy. He says, church, I know you're going through tough times. We've seen already that, they, that they're being persecuted. This church is being persecuted. And he says, no, I want you to persevere. I want you to keep going. Press on. Anchor yourself in the faith because there's so much joy to be found there. But then the second thing that he wants us to know about this faith is it's It's certain. The certainty of faith. The certainty of faith. He starts praying. If you notice in verse 11, Paul starts praying again. But, but notice what he says. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you. Let's stop there. See what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm not gonna, I don't, don't want to trust in my own abilities. 
Because, I mean, you think about it. This is Paul, the apostle Paul. He, he wrote the majority of the New Testament. He planted church after church after church. This is a phenomenal man. Most Christians, when, when they think about the Scriptures, they go, listen, I, I'd love to have faith like Paul. I'd love to be like Paul. He must have been an amazing preacher. An amazing preacher. But he doesn't, he doesn't call out for those things. He doesn't trust in those things, but rather he turns to God. He turns to God. He says, God, I need you to direct. I need you to make. He calls on the sovereignty of God. Not on his skills or his wisdom or his insight, because Paul knows it's not enough. It'll never be enough. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how talented you are. It'll never be enough. And so he calls on the sovereignty of God. He anchors himself in his faith and he calls on the, the certainty of Jesus Christ. You're the one that directs. You're the one that makes. And so when we pray, we should pray to God that he would do the work. Now, I'm not saying that, that like, we should be like, well, okay, it's all about the sovereignty of God, so then therefore my skills mean nothing. My contribution means nothing. No, it does. It does. But I just want you to acknowledge that that wisdom that you have, those accolades that you have, those resources that you have, all of those were given to you by God. When you study late at night, wake up in the morning and go and kill that exam, all of that was given to you by God. He's not just the creator of all things, but he's the sustainer of all things. And so if we're to understand our faith, we're to understand the sovereignty of God. And so Paul starts his prayer by calling out to the one who is in control. And he says, Lord, would you direct, would you make? But notice what he asks for. I'll read again from verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. I'm going to be honest. I don't like hearing those words. I really don't. I really don't like hearing those words. Because remember, the, the church in Thessalonica is going through persecution. Remember that. They're going through persecution. I would have preferred to hear from Paul, God, would you remove the persecution that they're experiencing? I would have preferred that prayer. Lord, would you, would you make it easier for them? I would have preferred that prayer. But he doesn't. This is what Paul says. He says, would you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you? So often when we're going through tough times, we cry out to God to change the circumstances. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't. We should. In fact, God invites us to do so. He invites us to do so. But you've got to know that sometimes God won't. He won't change the circumstances. And so when that happens, we need to pray for something different. 
We need to anchor ourselves in our faith and pray for something different. We need to ask God to change our hearts. God, would you change my heart so that I might engage in whatever's going on? I shared a couple of weeks about uh, how I felt when I saw everything that's happening in our nation. With the fees must fall and the injustice. It, just, it was crazy. And I, and I cried out to God. I said, God, would you change this? Would you change this? He may. There's also a reality that he may not. And so therefore, I am to ask him to change my heart. That he would give me a heart that loves. And that I would engage whatever the circumstances. Many of us, we're going through so much. Loved ones who are sick. Unemployment. The uncertainty that lies around the corner. But my fear is that we'll find ourselves worshiping the idol of certainty. God, I, I, I want you to make it clear to me what is going to happen in the next few days. God, I want the 10 steps. Show me that I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to even worship you until you show me the 10 steps for the next three months of my life. And sometimes he doesn't. He doesn't have to. He's sovereign. He doesn't have to. And so when he doesn't, we should pray that he would change our hearts. That we would not worship the idol of certainty, but rather praise the certainty of our Christ. We would praise the certainty of our Christ, that he loves us, that he loves us, that he cares for us. That, sh that should be what compels us. And so Paul, Paul says, listen, I... I'm asking him to increase your love. Increase your love for those who are part of the faith and for those who aren't. Why? So that those who aren't would be able to become part of those who are part of the faith. Man, that was good. You can, you can tweet that. Um, ask him to change your heart. Even when you're going through persecution or trials or challenges, ask him to change your heart. And I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for him to change the circumstances. Paul understood what that meant. In Corinthians, he cries out to the Father because he has this thorn in his flesh. Three times he cries out. Change this reality. Change these circumstances. God doesn't. And so what is his response? He says, no, your grace is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. It'll allow me to engage and to carry on. I've heard it said that, that all of the Christian life is either you're walking into a fire, you're in a fire, or you've just come out of a fire. This side of heaven, that's about it. So praise the days that you're coming out of a fire. Those are good days. But some days you're walking in. Many of you this morning are in one. Pray that he would change your heart that you would grow in love for one another and love for those who don't know him. I'll give one more example. I love Paul. I'm like, this dude was crazy. I, I, 
It's easier for me to identify myself to David because that guy was like, one day I love Jesus, the other day is like, I don't know what's going on. That's easier for me. Paul is just like, he's always, always loving Jesus. And so this one time he goes into this town, preaches the gospel, right? Because his joy is found in people knowing who Jesus is. And so he goes in and he preaches the gospel. They beat him up almost to the point of death, and they throw him out of the city. Paul rests a little bit, gets up, dusts himself off, and he's like, listen, I had two more points. I'm going to go back. I wasn't finished. And that's how I know that Paul, Paul must have had some black preacher in him. Because <laughs> I think what happened was he was preaching the sermon, and he was like, um, and so on my final point, and so on my final point, and so two hours later, he was still like, so on my final point, and someone was like, no, I'm not having this. Uh, we're beating this guy up, and we're, we're taking him outside. That's, but that's, that's how I read the Bible. Don't, don't, don't judge me. If you're anchored in your faith, and you're truly seeking to make a change, persecution will come. Pray that he changes it, but sometimes he won't. And so ask that he changes your heart so that you might persevere. That's the certainty of our faith. Now all of this leads to something. This life of love results in showing forth what we already have in Jesus. And this is at the heart of Paul's teaching. If you read the scriptures, this is at the heart of Paul's teaching. And that is to become more and more like Jesus. That's at the heart of Paul's teaching is that we would become more and more like Jesus. Another way to say it is to live what you already are in Jesus. For those of you who are anchored in your faith, Paul just wants you to live what you are already are. Sounds right. To grow in that. To be blameless and holy. We're to be blameless and holy. Read with me verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. So that he might establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. You are declared holy. For those who have crossed the line of faith, for those who anchor themselves in Jesus, you are declared holy. So be holy. Be holy. God is the one that declares you holy through his son, Jesus Christ. This is who you are. So therefore, a life of abounding love does not secure that because it's already secure. A life of abounding love is evidence of your holiness. It's evidence that you are in Jesus Christ and that you have crossed the line of faith. Do you get that? When you love, you, you don't love so that you might secure holiness. That's not how it works. But when you love, it's evidence that you are holy, that you are His. And so Paul says, listen, I just want you to, to live that. That's what the rest of this book is about. He's saying, listen, if you are in Christ, you are declared holy. So just live it. In your sex life, in your relationships, in the way you work. Live as one who is holy. Because you've been declared holy. 
Do you want to know if you're a Christian? I get that question a lot. How do I know that I'm a Christian? You should ask and answer this question in the affirmative. Do you love? The answer should be yes. Do you love? Do you love those that are in community, those who are in faith? Do you love those who are outside of the faith? John gives us the same test. He says it this way, do you love Jesus and do you find yourself growing in love for others? Are you growing in your love? If you are, you are holy. And that shows us that we're established in His holiness that will withstand the final judgment. He says it right at the end. So that he, might, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Because you've been declared holy, you'll be able to stand on that last day. That's going to be the theme of the rest of the letter. Jesus is coming back, and only those who are His will survive the final judgment. Only those who are His will go with Him to heaven, and the rest will be separated from Him throughout eternity. Paul is serious about this. He's very serious about this. And he says, listen, when you love others, when you love others, that is evidence that you have been declared holy. And so if you don't love others, then you need to question whether you are in the faith. If you don't find yourself growing in love, and in a transcultural community, I feel like it's exposed. Because now you're having to love people who don't think like you, who don't vote like you, who didn't grow up the same way you grew up. You're in city groups and you're going, why would they say something like that? God, am I really called to love that person? Surely there's an exception. There's an exception to every rule. No, you're called to love. You're called to love. And when you do so, it's evidence that you are holy. Paul says, just become what you are already. But I love the fact that Jesus models this for us. All of this, he models it for us. Jesus will never ask us to do something that he himself has not already done. He won't. And so he models it for us. He was the one who had perfect faith, day in and day out. Because if the message to us was, hey, just have a little bit more faith. I hear that all the time. Just, just have a little bit. Oh, you're struggling. Just have a little bit more faith. That's going to leave us massively discouraged. Because that faith, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, that, that faith is going to be tested, and it's going to be tried, and then we're going to fail every time. Every time. You'll find yourself back at the same place. If you're going to try to do this in your own strength and your own abilities, we should look to Jesus as our example. The perfect model. 
But the good news is that Jesus is the one who had perfect faith. He's the one who had perfect faith. And the one thing that impresses Jesus in all the Gospels, if you read the Gospels, the one thing that impresses Jesus is our faith. It's it's us anchoring ourselves in faith. It's not your social standing. It's not how much of the Bible you know. It's not whether you have these long prayers. It's not how much money you have or how much money you give to the church. The one thing that impresses Jesus over and over again is our faith. It's our faith. That's what gets his attention. And so I want to read this this story to you to prove that that the one thing that gets Jesus' attention is our faith. It's a story about Jesus' encounter with a, a Roman soldier. Matthew 8, from verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hear these words. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, he turns to his disciples, men who had given up everything to follow Jesus. Men who, in a sense, we could say grew up in the church, went to Sunday school. After engaging with this Roman soldier, who would have been seen as someone who's like, this guy knows nothing about what we believe. He says to him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. No one in Israel has faith like you do. I haven't seen it. This is incredible. I'm noticing. Jesus notices our faith. It's the one thing that grabs his attention. And so that's why Jesus is amazed at this Gentile soldier a stranger to the covenant, a man with limited understanding of the scriptures, saw what few covenant church-going people saw when they looked at Jesus. See, Jewish crowds flocked around Jesus. Jewish leaders would often fight and debate with him. But like Peter in the boat full of fish, the centurion recognized divine holiness. He saw himself as one who is full of sin and not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. He also recognized Jesus' authority. While Jewish elders asked Jesus questions like, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority, this foreigner knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew Jesus had authority from the Father to command the natural world. He knew proximity was no factor. Jesus could speak disease out of existence from any distance. Jesus saw the faith that this man had. And even though it was little, he may not have understood how how the Old Testament fits into the New Testament and the themes of the Bible. He knew enough to look at Jesus and say, you know what, This 
This is the Son of God. He is holy. All authority has been given to him. And as he did that, he began to see himself for who he was. A man in desperate need of a savior. This is the faith that Jesus notices. This is the faith that we need. But also, Jesus is the one who abounded in love. Again, modeling this for us. John 15 verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. These aren't just words. Jesus took these words to the cross. He took these words to the cross, abounding in love. He put them in action by dying for us, modeling for us what it means to love one another. You and I can only abound in love as we know his love, the love that knows no bounds, the love that left the glories of heaven to come down to earth and live among us, willing to bear all pain and suffering and disappointment and discouragement. Love sent the Son. Love sent the Son. This great one who first loved us and gives us the necessary power to love is the same one who establishes us perfectly, wholly before the Father. It's the same one. And so if we were to be honest, we, we should desire this Thessalonian-type faith. The faith that Paul sees in this young church, in this small church, we should desire that faith. The faith that brings joy. The faith that anchors us in the certainty of who Christ is. We should want that. We should want the kind of faith that a great apostle like Paul would go, I rejoice in that. Rooted fellowship, you are my crown. That's why I labored, because I knew generations after generations after generation, men and women would find themselves anchored in Jesus. You are my crown. We should desire that kind of faith, the kind of faith that gets Jesus' attention. I mean, how amazing would it be to get a letter from the Apostle Paul saying, hey, your faith, your faith got me through. I'm in chains, I'm in prison, but your faith got me through. My labor is not in vain. How amazing would that be? So where is it? Why does it feel so often that we don't have it? Well, I think it's because faith requires us to look beyond everything that is natural for us. Faith requires us to look beyond what is natural for us and, and the challenge is that we are creatures of sight. We are creatures of sight. And so when we look out of these doors and, and we see the pain and the hurt and the struggles, it's just hard to have faith. It's hard to have faith. R.C. Sproul says this, the hardest thing about being a Christian is believing in a God you can't see. That's so true. So then what do we do? What do we do? Guys, I'm human. I hope that every Sunday that I, when I stand up here, that comes across, I'm human. I know how hard it is to, to believe in a God that you, you can't tangibly see. I mean, just sharing your faith is one of those things where you go, man, I must be anchored in Jesus. Because I'm out there telling people about, listen, um, 
God created everything, and, uh, and we are sinful, and so therefore he sends his son uh, born of a virgin. I mean, that already people are like, wait, buddy, come on. I thought we were going to have a serious conversation. No, this is true. And then he lived a perfect life, a life that you and I cannot live. Oh, and then, and then he died for us. Yeah, yeah, we, we put him on the cross. Oh, and then, he, and then he rose from the dead. So the story gets more exciting. He rose from the dead, hung out with some guys, had some fish. It was, it was awesome. And then he ascended to heaven, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's coming back. That's, that's the gospel. I, I, I believe in that. I give my life to that. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. And so we are called to anchor ourselves in it, to, to trust Him. But how? How do we do it? The answer seems simple, and to some degree it is. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12 Verse 1 to 2 says it this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know when this comes in? This comes in right after the writer of Hebrews talks about the hall of faith. When he talks about, about Moses, David, all those, those men and women that we aspire to. And he says, hold on, you are surrounded by all of them. And they are cheering you on. They've gone through the same challenges and difficulties that you've gone through, that you are currently going through, and that you will go through. How did they make it? They kept their eyes on Jesus. How will you make it? How will, how will we make it? Keeping our eyes on Jesus. And so I'll close with this. The Thessalonians experienced unshakable faith producing joy. Unshakable faith producing joy. Because their faith had been shaken by trials and persecutions. How do you get an unshakable faith? Well, it needs to be tested. It needs to be tested. And so like James says, we should rejoice when trials and afflictions come our way because they're going to test our faith. But you know, the only way I'm going to make it is, is if I'm in community with you guys. When, when, when my eyes are slowly drifting away from Jesus, I need you to come to me and say, hey, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep going. Persevere. Press on. He's producing an unshakable faith. And as we walk the lonely and often difficult road of faith, remember, when it seems like you're being shaken to the core, and some of you have been there in major ways just this past week when it feels like you've been shaken to the core. 
It is because God loves you too much to leave you, your faith unshaken. He loves you way too much to leave you unshaken. For he is making it unshakable. That is the only kind of faith that will last. That's the only kind of faith worth having and rooted. It's the only kind of life worth living. That one day we will join that cloud of witnesses and look on to the next generation and cry out to them, press on. Press on. There's joy that is found in this faith. Anchor yourself in the certainty of who Jesus Christ is. Press on. I long for that day. So should we. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we come and we ask and we plead that you would anchor us in this faith. As I think about so many who have gone before us, the Ruths of our faith, the Solomons of our faith, the prophets of our faith, the disciples who walked with you, Jesus, the apostles, men and women who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. Father, my hope is that we would join them together trusting in you, believing that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that joy is found in the gospel. True joy is found in the gospel. And so would you reveal that to us, that we are a community in desperate need of you. And, and though this message may, may get us through the rest of the day, maybe even tomorrow, Father, we need faith that will get us through the week. And so my cry is the same as Paul's when he said, your grace is sufficient. May your grace be sufficient for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.